Welcome to the Innovation Oz podcast, where we talk to Australia's business leaders about public policy affecting tech-based innovation, from ag tech to financial services to advanced manufacturing. If you're interested in new thinking to encourage new action in building Australia's economy in transition, tune in each week. My name is Corey McLeod. I'm the publisher of innovationoz.com. We have a fantastic discussion coming up today. It's in the follow-up to the Paddle Impact Accelerator program last week in diversity in STEM. And the person who leads Paddle, who's had a stellar career in innovation and a whole range of, of companies, ASX and private companies, Dominic Fisher is joining us to talk about the programs that they're running in STEM, the innovation games, and some of the things they discovered last week throughout this particular program. We're also delighted to welcome Andrew Stevens. Andrew is the Chair at Industry Innovation and Science Australia and has held a range of roles leading IBM locally and in global markets, in the Abouts Manufacturing Growth Centre, and just someone who's also a male champion of change. So, I'd just like to welcome both of you for what promises to be an excellent discussion. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Corey. Thank you, Corey. My pleasure. Great to be here. Dominique, I'm going to start with you because you've come off a session of fact-finding discussions with a wide range of participants in the program last week. Tell us what you found out, what was different to what you've usually heard, if anything. Where are we right now coming off the back of that week? Wow, a great and uh, important list of questions, Corey. Um, so it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And our survey data that's starting to come in now is proving to be extremely interesting. I suppose it's important to understand who was actually there. So we had a whole cross-section of um, students and grads, PhDs uh, from universities. We had some TAFE students in the mix. And then we also had a great representation of large and small corporates, membership peak bodies, et cetera. So really trying to have a very diverse representation of organisations. Probably the most overwhelming, I suppose, observation I would make is that STEM really has been positioned unintentionally as an issue for basically the science sector, that anybody else who falls outside of that world to a large degree, it really isn't relevant to them. It's something that government, that academics, that science community own, and there was very little basic understanding of how it actually impacted individuals who weren't specifically from that sector. So that would be the first major observation. There was a lot of oh my goodness, I had no idea STEM was relevant to me going on the whole time. So, you know, what is STEM and how is it relevant to the average person? Second thing was that we actually framed the question for the challenge, basically for the National Innovation Games part anyway, about overcoming the barriers for women in STEM. And the overarching theme for the week was achieving diversity in STEM. What was probably the most disturbing thing, if I could go the other end of the spectrum, was that men, including young men, tertiary students and so on, basically either did not feel safe being part of the conversation or didn't see it relevant to them. So observation there would be if I had my chance again, I would not have framed the question overcoming the various women in STEM. I would have perhaps gone down the path of how do we deepen and broaden the STEM skills pool for Australia and then let those things happen because there was a very stark male-female positioning being taken, which was actually, which inhibited the conversation. And then lastly, I'd say that small business basically has not seen itself part of the STEM debate at all. 
And I think we've really cracked something last week where they suddenly actually, whether that was through COSBOA's Council of Small Business Organisations involvement, all the way through to the number of small businesses we had involved from kind of startup entrepreneurs all the way through to what I describe as old school small businesses, suddenly were it was dawning on them that STEM was actually a, very much a part of their everyday business and that it was very much a part of their future. So a big awareness around the small business sector. All of those groups, I think, have been kind of disenfranchised from the debate. So that was, a, that was an interesting observation. Andrew, you are a male champion of change and involved specifically in some of the working groups looking at STEM. What exactly are you finding? What are the discussions? What are you hearing? What are some of the, the challenges specifically when it comes to STEM? Yeah, Corey, um, I'm a member of the founding group of the Champions of Change. And about two years ago, by the way, in the context of the National Innovation and Science Agenda, it was Minister Andrews who actually was keen to engage on some specific interventions in the STEM sector And she came to us and basically asked us to put together a specific group to focus on STEM disciplines. So we have technology, we have engineering, we have maths, and obviously we have science. So we have, for example, Larry Marshall as a member from CRO, Brian Schmidt, Vice-Chancellor of ANU. We had A.D. Patterson, who was the head of ANSTO, et cetera. We have um, the head of Fujitsu and a number of tech companies. So we have a broad range in the context of STEM as represented by Dominique just a few minutes ago. And basically the, the process that if you think about the champions of change disruption that Liz Broderick brought to this nation, it was that the representation of women in most contexts in business particularly is imbalanced. It's too low. But the reason it's too low is because there is a power structure that actually underrepresents women and overrepresents men. We've found that through our a regular part of what we do in Champions of Change is listen and learn. We go and talk to people in organizations. And so we did a detailed listen and learn amongst all of those software companies, tech companies, research agencies, universities, etc., like we do. And then we get back together and discuss the issues. And the other thing is we spoke to a, a number of very senior STEM women about their careers and why they're there. And the conclusion we have, there's now 240, 250 male champions and members of those groups. There's 16 groups. There's a global tech group. There's a group in Pakistan. So it's an international thing. And the stories we heard from those women about their careers in STEM were quite frankly as bad and as poor as we've heard in any sector. And they compare much more unfavorably with very, very male-oriented environments where most people would say that's terrible. The research and academia portion was as bad as, quite frankly, I've ever heard. If you look at the sort of data on representation, today we're in Australia there's nearly 370,000 bachelor degree STEM candidates out there, and it's 49% women and 51% men. PhDs, the number's 46 and 54, there's 33,000 PhD candidates. If you look at junior academics, for example, I'll just use this as an example, the 6,000 junior academics in STEM, 50.2% are women and 498 are men. But when you get to senior professors in STEM, and this senior leadership thing is important, there's only 21% that are women and 80% or 79% who are men. And the reality is the tone of gender equality is influenced in this power balance in leadership so that 
a high representation of women, a balanced representation of women in that area creates a totally different environment. And so our reality, whether it's architects, engineering, property, banking, doesn't matter what sector, same dynamic applies in that representation of women in senior leadership positions creates a different outcome and basically overcomes the barriers. And today, unfortunately, we don't see that balance in very, very significant portions of STEM. And so the reality is our group is aiming at working with the organisations who are part of that to pilot ideas which will actually address that imbalance. And realistically, it was Liz Broderick's masterstroke disruption that said, we have to engage the people who have the power in these organisations to change and disrupt the process. We can't approach this by trying to fix the women. We've got to disrupt the process so that the recruitment process, the promotion process, the pay rise process, and all of those normal HR processes need to be disrupted to create an equal opportunity and an equality-based environment for women and for men in the businesses. And quite frankly, in STEM, and the reason why I wanted to join this panel is that, that we have a long way to go in STEM and many sectors of the economy are moving substantially faster. So this is somewhat of an emergency. I think, uh, Dominique, it'd be fair to say that uh, the chief scientist, Cathy Foley, really sort of had that kind of headline figure of how long it would take at the rate we're moving at now to reach some semblance of equality when it comes to these sort of senior positions. Did you get a sense from last week, Andrew sort of really highlighted that things travel along nicely and then all of a sudden the numbers blow out when it gets to that senior leadership in, in academia. What's happening then? Like, what is it? Did you get a sense of it from your conversations? Yeah, it was so, you know, Kathy, Dr. Kathy Foley thought it would take us 130 years, which is pretty extraordinary. So the word that just kept coming up again and again and again was confidence. It, it was a really fascinating exercise and the more different groups talked and it didn't matter what sector and I'd add a few more to Andrew's I don't think we do ourselves service by just talking about STEM as being you know science technology engineering and maths STEM underpins every single sector in the economy and half the issue for me is that people don't actually realize they're performing STEM-based roles when they are because they're not in those formal categories but the overwhelming kind of evidence or the reasons for this shared by young women who came from what we had 20 plus universities, so representatives from different universities, different levels, different qualifications right across the spectrum, was this confidence. So they seem to, in a number of areas, the pipeline strong. In some, let's take agriculture as a case in point. There are more women enrolled in agriculture qualifications right now than there are men. I, feel, I don't hold me on the facts. It's something like 52% to female. And yet by the time they get to sort of mid-career, that dramatically falls to sort of 20-ish. And the women who actually are in senior leadership roles in agri-tech are 2.3% in Australia. So there seems to be a number of factors here and it's too early, I suppose, this many days out, but we're still doing analysis. But confidence, not actually being able to see other women who are successful in careers. So this whole concept of I can't be what I can't see kept coming up again and again. The cry for mentorship, the cry for kind of safe space to explore STEM things where they're not going to be judged by men kept coming up. And then there was just good old-fashioned ignorance as to this actually is a career path that I can be successful in. So there seems to be a 
and, and, and the kind of generic word there is confidence. So women are not feeling comfortable about pursuing long-term careers in a number of typical kind of STEM-based um, sectors. The women who are successful in those may be visible to select groups of people but are largely invisible to the broader community. I mean, we all, us on this call, know how many programs there are at the moment running both with the Australian government and state governments around the country trying to give visibility to successful women in STEM. Well, none of the people participating last week had heard of any of them. So that was really curious to me. And these are women enrolled in science-based, you know, science, technology, engineering, maths, et cetera, calls at universities, they're not seeing those people. So there's this lack of visibility of what a female who is successful in any of these sectors looks like and no real understanding of, I suppose, why in many cases women would find themselves. So there was case after case after case of in, in some of our networking conversations towards the end of the week where someone would say, one person said, you know, I'm in my third year of an engineering degree and I am still to have a single female tutor or lecturer. And this is a, this is universal. Or I have been one of two females in my tutor group for the last 12 months. Like there was just this complete lack of women. And yet the statistics are showing us that they're in various qualifications across the tertiary sector, there's this sort of parity, but that was not what was being shared last week, given the fact we were dealing with sort of 150-odd people as opposed to thousands, but it was still interesting. So confidence, confidence, confidence. And what they saw as being, I think, the opportunity to address that lack of confidence was actually being able to be supported by other women who basically said, here's the pathway to success and not being able to see that. There's a bunch of things have been brought up and, uh, you know, we've also been running the series See What You Can Be, and which is much more focused on teenagers and girls and boys because it would say that they're both critically important in terms of girls staying in those subjects. There's the cultural piece, the confidence piece, the mentorship. Can you talk about some of the structured programs? I think um, the budget last week, there was a PhD you know, program of, you know, women embedded in sort of industry-led PhDs. How important are these structural things so that we're starting to find ways to make sure we can actually see more of those women who are in those roles, who are engaging with industry and connecting those dots? Um, I think they're absolutely critical. And I think, you know, I totally agree with Andrew. This is crisis levels. I mean, if the prediction of the number of STEM-reliant roles and jobs in the future, the numbers are anything to go by. Our talent pool is positively tiny to be able to support those. So everything and anything that we can do right across the spectrum needs to be done. And I think that PhDs are a classic case in point. We had a number of PhDs involved in last week and they are not networked well into the general. I, I, there are so many PhDs who ask us to help them find a job. It's ridiculous. They are not achieving employment in a lot of key areas and many of them have so much to contribute and many of them are women, interestingly. But Dominique, can I just ask you then, because you obviously you interact with a lot of people in that situation, are you satisfied that your previous comments on confidence, if these PhDs aren't getting these roles because they're not confident or do you think there's something else happening? Because I'm certain there's something else happening. Of course, you know, I mean, like I, I'll give you a one, I mean, just flipping from PhDs for a second. Confidence is a major issue. PhDs 
are probably the worst people on earth to sell themselves for employment would be my general observation. They are incredibly brilliant, but they in their field of expertise and they don't know how to sell themselves and translate that expertise into an employable outcome. We've seen this for years and it's part of why we engage PhDs in every national innovation games to network them. But I just want to share what, one example, which I suppose reinforces your point, Andrew, but comes at it from a completely different perspective. Each of the teams participating in the National Innovation Games was given an industry sector to look at this issue, overcoming the various system. And we included a wellness, beauty and hairdressing team. And you'd think, well, what's that got to do with the price of fish? Well, a lot. And it was very, very insightful. So if you take that sector, the customers of products in those sectors, the employees, small business owners are overwhelmingly women, 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 women. The further you go up the supply chain into product development, where I suppose the traditional STEM elements start coming, less and less and less women are involved. Absolutely. And the overwhelming the overwhelming gender of leader who is making decisions around what products women will buy, how they're made, et cetera, are all males. And yet the whole customer. So why is that? So I think, I don't know. So to your point, I think that's a good example. Because those coming up through the thing haven't got confidence. I know that's right. No, confidence, don't dismiss confidence, Andrew, but I I also wouldn't dismiss what you're suggesting either, which is that there are barriers there for women. What, what, you know, are women capable of being small business owners and employees, but they're not capable of running major corporates and huge programs? No, no, I think the issue is confidence. But the issue is that the bias from the power imbalance means men say, I'm not confident to hire and progress that woman. That's the confidence gap. We've seen it in 10 sectors. There's 250 of us who've been doing it for over a decade. And we see the same pattern repeated again and again. The confidence line worries me because if we make the women more confident, this will go away. And we can't afford to go down that path. It's a dead end of saying we have to fix women because the women don't need fixing. I could not agree more, but I would never dismiss something that a woman's telling me is really important to them, which is that they do need to feel confident because they do feel like they're going into battle and they do need to be confident. They need to be thick-skinned. So, I mean, I think from your earlier comments and certainly what what were some of the discussions that we were seeing and even the discussion we're having today, the reality is I would like to suggest that men can fix this problem, but It is not just a male problem. It is not just a female problem. And I would rather focus, rather than go down a kind of a gender debate, which I never find really productive as a woman who's been involved in, you know, many different sectors and levels in my career, I actually find that it's it's a much easier path to success to go down one where there's self-interest and benefit for all. And to me, if we as a nation do not do something about dramatically increasing the size and depth of the talent pool, i.e. the STEM talent pool, we can all forget a whole lot of things. And that way, when we focus on that, the easiest way to double the size is to actually have an inclusive view about how we're going to engage women. But at least that polarity that exists around the male-female debate doesn't skew things, which I think it too often tends to do. would be my two bobs. The one thing coming, your, your question, Corrie, I want to just link it with Dominic's points is that the issue is 
we've got to look at why the progression's there. And there's no suggestion that the champions of change, which now include large numbers of women, which why we've basically dropped male because it's not quite even, but it's very, we've had success and there's a lot of senior CEOs in all things. Kathy, by the way, is the deputy chair at Industry Innovation and Science, and she's on the STEM group with us in the Champions of Change, as indeed Alan Finkel was before. And so there's no suggestion these males are trying to solve this problem for women. Our approach is that women have largely achieved enormous amount in the area of suffrage, voting, and impact. But we thought that by bringing men to work alongside with women, we can be more effective than each of us standing on our own in the process. The second thing is that we've looked at through examining the decision-making process, the gender pay gap, promotion rates, who gets hired, who progresses to get female leaders to senior levels so that an environment of equality is established there. So you don't have to have thick skin, Dominique. You don't have to blast your way through because and just have to put up with all that rubbish that's all there. The system should nurture your career and that's the environment. That's the desired end state so that diversity becomes an advantage. And all in all, the process that we're at is we're a population of, what, 25, 26 million people We are relatively, well, we are very small in international terms and innovation and competitiveness will dictate our economic and social future. And we just can't afford in an an area as important as STEM is, and it's, as you say, it's tentacles right throughout virtually every sector to be turning off the availability of half of the talent. We just can't afford to do that. And the levels of representation of women at senior levels, for whatever reason, are so poor in this totally STEM communities, and in particular in research, and I'll give you a really good example in a minute, that we've got to realise that this is at emergency level. We heard stories, Dominique, of people that had applied for ARC funding for their research projects. And they know that one of the considerations, the merit criteria, is the gender balance amongst the team. When the funding comes, we heard time and time again that the team leaders who were male basically then exited the women off the team and then all of the funding was developed, developing the careers and reputations of the male members in that funding. Now, I know that Lisa Harvey-Smith, who's the, the STEM ambassador, Corinne, you talked about one of those things. Lisa has the view, and I support it, that we should actually have audits of those criteria, not only award the funding, but we should check that it's actually in place so that we do have a representation in our research investment and the teams that deliver it of both genders, because it's such an important thing that we have to find ways to disrupt. But the ultimate driver we found where success is, is we have to find ways to get an equity level at leadership so that decision-making is made in a gender-balanced way. And unless we do, the system will continue doing exactly what it's doing now and we'll make no progress. So, Andrew, can I just add a PS to your the example that you just gave? I was on a subcommittee of Besky for a long time and we specifically looked at the role of women in research and science and I chaired a public biotech company for 12 years. So I've I've worked a lot with, with women in this area. And whilst I would love to say it's as simple as saying, you know, there's a few creepy men who take funding away, it's actually, and I'm not suggesting it's as simple as that, 
that you're saying. It's as simple as that. Well, it's actually quite complex why this was happening. One of the reasons, really important reasons, was the need for women at the peak of their career to unfortunately coincide when most women are, are planning to have a family and where they want to take that one, two, three, four, five years out. You can't do that in science without huge penalty. And how you actually kept someone in as part of a program that was funded where they could only work part-time or they were only available for certain, you know, weeks in a month or whatever, the system was just not set up to do that. And that's why a lot of women were dropped off those research teams. And so, like, it's not not all men are bad in my view, and, and I'm not suggesting you saying they are, but there does seem to be a number of unique things in the program that we just had. The second day that we had, which Corey was very familiar with, was Western Sydney University hosted five high schools and there were girls in year 10. And they competed in this really, uh, this fun sort of little mini hack that we organised, which was writing children's storybooks. How could you write a children's storybook where you actually heroed or created awareness around kind of STEM for a five-year-old? And it was just unbelievable. The results were fantastic and can't wait to share those with you when they become available. But there was evidence after evidence after evidence about the way, the language that we're using, even in storybooks in 2021, are already imprinting on people's brains about the roles that men are good at and the roles that women are good at. Then you get to high school and this kind of group think takes over. This is, these are the girls talking, this is not me talking, who kind of 12, 13, where they hunt in a pack. Someone says, oh, I don't want to do biology. You want to do biology? No, let's go and do this. And then the group moves. It's very rare. It's usually the loner that stays in the STEM-based subjects. What's going on there? So there was a great discussion about you know, what are girls interested in at 12 and 13? And frankly, whether it is beauty, then fine, let's find let's find STEM applications in beauty and sport and the things that they love doing at that stage and make it real and relevant to them. Then they go to university and then this confidence piece kicks in. I'm the only girl in my engineering class and I'm not exactly sure how to change a tyre or whatever they're being asked to do. You know, there was an example of someone who was in that car competition. I can't remember what it is at Swinburne where you build a renewable energy powered car, et cetera. And, you know, that she was mortified and embarrassed and didn't want to go back to the class for something as stupid as that, but it's real. And then you get to the workplace and you have all the issues associated with having a family. And it's just like every step of the way, there's just, you know, there's just the reality of being a woman. And so how do we accommodate that in a way, which isn't just about HR processes and so on. It's actually rethinking genuinely around the flexibility of work. We even had a team propose I'm not quite sure how it would work in reality, but even propose this kind of concept of leadership sharing and, you know, a la job sharing. You know, so people are kind of grappling with this flexibility issue and trying to understand how that can actually work for women. But it is complex. And I think, and like I said, I'm not suggesting you're not saying that it is, but if it was just a matter of fixing an HR system or saying, okay, right, you know, 50% of all these roles have to be filled by women, you've got to have the women to fill the roles in the first place. There seems to be deep, deep issues in the pipeline that literally start from five-year-olds and it goes all the way through. That's what we kept seeing again and again last week. Um, so I didn't suggest that men were being creepy, by the way, Dominique, but there is a lens. We all recruit largely in our image 
And therefore, this confidence thing at the recruiting point says, that person doesn't look like me. And if all the people making that decisions are males, that's what happens. I know it sounds too simple, but if you look at all the work that's done... And yet, the overwhelming people working in HR are women. Yeah, I know, but they're not actually making the hire decision. They're running the process. And so can I just say, though, that we've got to get to the point where I had this vision when we started this group that the people in STEM, basically, if you said what unites them, they would say their objectivity and balance and their reliance on data to do it. And yet, when you look at these percentages and you think 50%, then all of a sudden it becomes 20% and then 5%. And it isn't, this is well beyond the point of parenthood in the academia world. In orthopedic surgeons, 3% of orthopedic surgeons are women. And when you ask, they say, oh, that's because we have to use power tools. And the reality is you use power tools because you don't need to use strength, you use power tools. There's something going on in these type of things that is more pronounced than in other sectors. We look across the whole lot and we see them and it requires a disruption of the process by which the system is conscious about including women. And so I can tell you, Corey, CSIRO, for example, CEO minus one. So the people who report to Larry Marshall, in 2017, it was 40% women, 43% in 2020. If you look at ANSTO, it went up from 20 to 33. In ANU, it's at 57% because of direct work that Brian Schmidt has done in relation to doing that. And we find that that's working. So it's changing the systems and process. But you ask the question, do any of these initiatives work? In and of themselves, the answer is no, they don't. They don't. And we've looked and been asked by many organisations to come and look at their HR processes and say, are these processes, we, we see the numbers on in representation of women, we must have a problem with our processes. And when you look, their processes and their policies are as good as anyone can ever have. And the answer is because it's about attitudes and mindset. So can I ask, because there is a lot going on under the bonnet. There are things we've talked about, five-year-olds through to systemic kind of hiring in the image of oneself. Two questions. One, is STEM and the way we frame STEM a problem in the way that women respond to it, i.e. are they more interested in solving problems that matter to them? And I forgot my second question, so that's good. Let's start with that. Is STEM, (laughs) are we talking about the wrong things? And if we're talking about objectivity, how do we look at where people value the diversity of thinking? So if you were to go to any kind of entrepreneurial place, people start talking about diversity of thinking, collaboration. So we understand in a bubble that that is valuable, but we don't seem to understand it when we're applying it to the way that we build our workforces. Your example about that ARC stuff is a classic example. You would think yeah. the diversity of thought would be benefit and someone scientifically minded would see that, but they're not. So you would, you would think that, but it seems not to be the case. So if you said, are young people interested, for example, in working out how to preserve and nurture koalas? How are young people interested in ensuring available and reliable fresh water for people living in outback and remote areas? The answer is absolutely they are. And the association between some of the skills that are needed to do both of those and STEM is not clear. My point, though, is not that argument because I agree completely with Dominique on that and with you that we haven't got a framing because you're young and you're really enterprising, so you should really do coding because coding is really important to you and this, whereas if you said I'm going to save koalas 
through coding, it might be different. The issue is we think that we have a diversity of capability question and problem in STEM when it's applied across the economy, and we can't afford to turn off that proportion of our capability and talent, whether they take parental leave and never return, or they decide on not doing biology because it seems uncool. And the reality is, I don't think the two are the same problem. I think there are two distinct problems. The gender question in STEM is no different to mining. It's no different to investment banking. It's no different to space industry. It's exactly the same as we see everywhere, and it needs to be attacked head on. And I just have found no success in, and I think it's leading us down the wrong path to try and fix the women. I really think that's a problem. So, Andrew, it's not about fixing the women, but there does need to Corey's point, which I think is an incredibly important one. And I suspect the answer lies in actually finding a way to have that conversation. I think the worst thing that's happened for STEM is actually referring to it as STEM for a start. People don't understand it. I can't tell you how many, and this is another key point I want to make, I cannot tell you how many small businesses I had to explain to what STEM actually meant. It just goes over people's heads. All the people you are talking about are fabulous, awesome leaders in a very discreet part of the economy. They're major corporates. They're major government agencies. They are not the 95% of employers in Australia. We are a land of small businesses. This is who people are going to be employed. Small businesses fill all of the supply chains of each of those organisations. This is where the conversation about STEM needs to be had. Not, I mean, yes, of course, it needs to go there, but in sort of the top end of town, but it is in this broad grassroots area, which is what we saw last week. And one question that was asked by a very brave young woman was, but what if women aren't interested in doing STEM? What's wrong with that? And I noticed, Corey, actually on something that James Riley published last week, I can't remember, there was a comment from a father of a daughter on an article he wrote which he said, I'm so devastated. My poor daughter is feeling guilty because she wants to do law, but she's been absolutely harassed. If you go and have a look at it, it'll be in one of your comment blocks to do STEM. And she doesn't want to do it. Why should she be made to feel that she has to? So this was another interesting subtlety that we tried to accommodate. We talked about removing the barriers to a career in STEM. We did not talk about shove you in the back and push you into a career in STEM. So we have to find some way to engage and incent women in a way that makes them want to walk through that door. And at the moment, they're not seeing it as a very attractive place for all the reasons that we've been talking about. So, you know, I think that it is much more productive for us to talk about what do we all need for a growing and successful economy for all of us to be able to achieve what we want to be able to do in our lives going forward, given the fact that the economy has been driven in a particular direction, what role are you going to play, whomever emerging talent person? Here are the sort of choices. Here are the sorts of careers. Which one of these are you going to choose? How are you going to equip yourself to be able to participate in the future employment of the country? That, to me, enables the individual on a bit of a discovery. They're not being harassed. You must do science and maths. You must do it. Because we know for a fact with young people that is the biggest turnoff ever. And as far as 
the conversations that we were having last week, that little lonely voice saying, but what if I'm not interested in doing STEM? That's a conversation we need to have. And what does that actually mean? Or is there even a possibility not to be interested in STEM because everything is STEM-based? So I'm really concerned that we don't polarise this into a conversation that we're having through a corporate lens. If we are going to be successful in Australia, we have to bust this open into a small business conversation that clearly also includes corporates. The people graduating from university overwhelmingly are going to be employed by a small business in Australia, not by a corporate. The numbers speak for themselves. Absolutely right, Dominic. 97% of all businesses in Australia are small, and small means employ five people or less. 97%. So what if we frame the conversation for them and then reset how we talk about it? Because if you're talking about science, technology, engineering, maths as someone who employs five people, their eyes cross over, it's got nothing to do with them, they're focused on meeting payroll next week, you know, go away. That's what we saw last week was people going, like I gave the hairdresser's example, but there were many others. I had no idea. I'm actually part of this. Yes, this is relevant to me. But they didn't talk about STEM. They talked about what they needed to grow their business in two years, five years, 10 years. Maybe by framing it that way, we can have a much more productive conversation rather than this kind of binary, we have failed or we are successful based on how many people we have employed in science, technology, engineering and maths, because it's a blend of those. I mean, one of the conversations I had with a group of women on was Thursday was what if we said to everyone, just pick two, doesn't matter which two, just pick two. And that way you guarantee your success in the future for as far as employment's concerned. That turned into a very funny conversation. Everyone started to apply how they could weave it into what their existing calls were today. So I think changing up that conversation is really, really important. And it's about making it accessible and real to individuals, not about a set of macro stats that will apply to kind of government agencies and corporates with the greatest of respect. We have a few minutes left. So we have opened up a giant conversation here and it has, it, it very, you know, importantly has gone through lots of different areas. I wanted to ask just in sort of summary and taking the thesis, Dominique, and I think it's a good one. And, and Andrew, yourself said like 97% of, you know, the economy is about small businesses. And we have people here that are going, what? STEM means absolutely nothing to me. So in kind of final words from both of you, when you start talking about small businesses in Australia and reaching them meaningfully, I think, you know, about the transition around, say, the digital economy or the use of e-commerce platforms, we now see that people understand the relevance to them in terms of what it will do to transform businesses. What would be what you want to see in the next 12 months if we're starting to see this conversation actually reach people in a more meaningful way? What are the one or two things we have to do? Oh, that's a big question, but let's see if we can. Dominic, if you're okay, do you want to, should I go first? No, you go, Andrew. I've been speaking too much. I tell you what, Corey, it's the increasingly because of the way the world's evolved, businesses are competitive not because of the tangible value they provide, like the metal and, the, and that, but the intangible value. So the design, the degree of fit, the confidence, the warranty, the trust that goes with all that. And this is the currency of the small business, the closeness, the, the feel, no, don't buy that because this is a better fit for you. All of that stuff speaks to small business. And in the context of the COVID pandemic, we've seen the biggest uplift led by small business in that stuff in the nation's history. 
we've seen the biggest move to what we call non-R&D-based innovation. So it didn't actually, I know we're talking about spin, but it didn't involve a scientific method. It was a new channel. It was new products. It was a digital online implementation led the way to the point where it's been a significant contributor to the robustness and then the rapid uplift of the economy post the lockdowns to the point where we've never seen it before. So what do I hope? My aspiration, and that's why I'm involved in doing what I do with Kathy and the other members of the board at ISA, and working with the Department of Industry and the Minister and the government is we want to keep that rocking. This is the most exciting and robust and resilient response from small, medium and large business in the nation's history. And rather than us say, well, that was good, but we don't have to worry about it anymore. Imagine if we kept that going. Imagine if we kept that on a trajectory and if anything, we could steepen it. We could go even higher, led, of course, by the 97% of small business owners. But then again, you know, Peter Strong from Cosboa tells me that 20% of all small business don't even run any software whatsoever. So there's a, there's a sort of a massive opportunity for us, socially and economically, and given the importance of small business in that interface between social and economic development, we have an opportunity to build on what we did and we prove that we can do in the COVID environment where 68% of businesses basically did something dramatically different and it not only saved them, they prospered in the processes, which was why, okay, there's some government programs, but it's why employment is strong and many businesses are pivoted to do something quite different and it's a vastly higher place. So my hope is that we continue that. And if that means we get a different consciousness on the use of capabilities in science, engineering, technology, maths and arts and creativity and design, that's a beautiful place. All I know from everything I've done in the Champions of Change arena is that future will be more secured and more successful if we have equal quantities of men and women engaged in the key stuff that is required to deliver it. That's absolutely certain, and I think it's within our grasp. I think, um, sorry, Dominic, I was just going to say, Andrew, to your point, I definitely feel that as a small business owner myself. I think last year and to some extent this year, it was a moment where we knew to borrow a phrase from Glennon Doyle, we can do hard things. So let's keep going. Yeah. It was like existential threat. And you said, well, what are we going to do? Get into the fetal position and cower in the corner or are we going to fight it out? And I tell you what, we came through very, very strongly. We studied previously, you know, business investment in R&D and innovation and we saw it in spades. Never in our history have we done anything as significant. And let's just say, rather than revert to how it used to be, and we'll sleepwalk our way towards the future from here, let's keep it going, stimulate it, and get it going to another level. And I tell you what, the future is a beautiful place in that context. So the great thing about it is that the, the National Innovation Games, which was the cornerstone of last week, is actually an Australian government program that we're rolling out, which is a $3.24 million commitment from the Australian government, to actually introduce, encourage and nurture innovation, risk-taking, digital upskilling of small business across the country. This is what we've been doing since 2018. So I'm going to claim a small bit of that resilience that we saw in small business because we've been working in every state and territory in the country involving hundreds and hundreds of small businesses. The most exciting thing about that program, and Karen Andrews was the original minister that launched that program, 
is the fact that we know when we can create a space for small business, which we do, it's one intense day around an innovation challenge. We bring highly diverse voices to the table, which is your point, Corey, emerging talent, experienced people, expert specialists, definitely PhDs, small business owners and employees. And we create that space to let them step back and reflect on their business and give them the freedom to innovate and go nuts and equip them with the skills and knowledge around them to execute on their ideas. Magical things happen. And it's like we give them the permission to run. And what they don't realize half the time is that it's all STEM-based. That's what's the exciting thing. So the whole National Innovation Games is all about developing STEM skills across the country. So I totally agree with you, Andrew. I think the exciting thing for me is actually trying to change the mindset of emerging talent. So students, grads, PhDs at universities, TAFEs, registered training organisations across the country to actually see opportunities in small business just as attractive as they do the Deloitte grad program or the Westpac grad program and to actually see where their natural skills in STEM, technology being the easiest of them to bring to the table, actually can change and open up new pathways, new success, new revenue streams, whatever for small business. So I share the same excitement about the future. I do worry about the way we frame some of these conversations. I think you know, to a large degree, the fastest way to get people aligned is to help them understand what's in it for them, to be frank. And the reality is small business can't survive the future unless they innovate. And in order to innovate in 2021, you've got to have access to a skills pool that is deeply based in STEM. If we can somehow frame that conversation that way, I think there are exciting times ahead. And we're seeing it now. We're empowering small businesses all across the country in different ways. And I seriously look forward to continuing this conversation with you, Andrew. And Dominique, I'm confident that that'll work what you've just outlined. I'm absolutely confident. And I'm confident too in all your conversations. It'll all come together. (laughs) Absolutely. Can I uh, just, I want to thank both of you. If we could bottle even like a tiny snippet of the passion and energy and commitment from the two of you today, I reckon we could supercharge a lot. So this has been a wonderful conversation and congratulations on a great week last week and ongoing endeavours. Andrew, the leadership that you show with Male Champions of Change, all of the other things that you're doing. Thanks to both of you. Wonderful conversation. Lots to do, but uh, I think we're, we're well on the way to understanding. Hey, thanks, Corey. And you know what? Dominique and I are not alone. There's a lot of people with a lot of energy Absolutely. out there. All I'd say is, folks, go for it. Go for it. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Innovation Oz podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com. Check out our recent stories on tech, innovation and policy. Or follow us up on social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is Innovation Oz wishing you a great week ahead.